0: of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me.
1: The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom- as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh,
0: progressive
1: revival
0: if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mau Mau, or this oath will kill me.
1: I love that new intro. Shout out to Quinn. (laughs) Quinn turned with the new intro of the Mau Mau hour. I had no idea Quinn was doing that. And I saw a message. Did you guys get the new intro for the Mao Mount? Like, intro for the Mount Mount. And he sends it to me. I'm watching it this morning. I was like, hoo, 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 hoo. but thank you guys so much. Thank you for all the patrons that are watching right now. You guys are definitely the fuel in the TIR engine that keeps us moving. And definitely thank you everyone that's going to be watching on the replay. Thank you, all the audio only listeners, and I'll be listening to this when it becomes an audio only podcast in a few days. Let me move out of the way and bring in my homie, my dog, Miami, Florida, weighing in at a whopping 225 pounds, offensive lineman from Hofstra by way of Boston University the pascal robert
2: peace and greetings to the chat peace and greetings to the audience peace and raising greetings, greetings jason miles
1: i'm gonna change your weight every time
2: this is too much. i like the aspirational lift <laughs> <elixir. laughs>
1: she is the faceless voice of reason what would this show be without this woman's contributions on the screen and all she does off the screen she is the m2 song
2: hello hello to all the barbenheimers
1: out there <laughs> jesus uh have you seen that movie yet no no i would now i I have to see barbie as well as oppenheimer it's a uh, it's a package it's a double feature you yeah. know the hair is pressed i know you can go there and whip <laughs> it and whip it all over the theater yeah. they need to see you do that as you buy the popcorn be like mm, extra butter Extra butter. <laughs> right there's vegan popcorn there
2: <laughs>
1: and i will let pascal introduce the guest before i move out of the way
2: Today, we have on our show, this evening I should say, one of the most profound uh, intellectuals intellectuals and thinkers of the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, social critic of all things that are noxious to the consciousness of the liberators of society, injustice and everything of that nature. Uh, A man who for me has been uh, a sound, sound voice, challenging status quo politics, um in America overall and even within the context of black America, we have the well respected, well regarded intellectual Dr. Cornell West.
3: Oh, my brother, I just wanna begin by saluting you to our Brother Pascal. Magnificent oh, force for good that you are, but also saluting Jason and MT sound as well. I know that they uh Part of the crew, the team, the collective, the comradeship that keeps this truth-telling site going, my brother.
2: I appreciate that. I just want to let you know, because I I would not do justice to my mentors and teachers without mentioning that in the dark days where people were were basically not supporting Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford, who were giving vigorous challenge to the establishment president at that time, uh, Barack Obama, you were one of the lone voices in the black community that were outwardly supporting my my friends and mentors who have thus passed away, Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford, in their ever, ever desire to expose the neoliberal sham that was that presidency. And I want you to know that there are people who remember you for that, who, who may not say it in public, but I am one of those people who remember you for that. And thank you for being loyal to those two men who had such an impact
3: on my life. No, but that's that's a beautiful thing. You know, Glenn and I used to break bread once a month, right there on the Upper West Side at the uh, the French restaurant on 120th Street. He's a chain smoker, just like the great Sarah Vaughn. So I'd have to go outside. He was doing doing the lunch and just continue to talk, cause I was just taking in the knowledge and the wisdom and the spirit. And he, he had a cigarette, go back in, start eating, have a cigarette again, go back in. But we did that for many years, man. I take a bullet for that brother, though. He's one of the great, he's the greatest revolutionary journalist, really, since Ida B. Wells, when, when you think about it. And I know T. Thomas Fortune and others were towering figures. But there's just nobody like Glenn, though, man. And you know his history in terms of the music, as well as being a revolutionary. His father had in the radio station that James Brown first bought down in Georgia. So we, we talk about James Brown and Rick James and Bootsy and George Clinton, let alone Aretha, and he knew all of them. And then his own revolutionary uh, intellect, such a powerful intellect that had the courage to tell very painful truths about both the Black bourgeoisie as well as the American empire. And he just was true. He he was faithful unto death, man. He was was true his whole life in terms of his calling and his integrity. And uh, he always meant the world to me and part of his spirit is at work inside of me as part of his afterlife at work in my own life though man and you were there at the funeral of course and and you knew the words that so many of us had to say to him and his family his, his kids and so forth that his wonderful sister and his nephew ran for office I was there to support him and he ran for office as well no Glenn man he uh He's 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 just a towering figure. I hope we never forget him. But you know how hard it is to focus in on the great figures in a moment of such overwhelming mediocrity and mendacity. It's like how people forgot about Paul Robeson so quickly. You know what I mean?
2: No, absolutely. No, that's, we, We're going to talk about things to that effect. Yeah, right. I, you know, okay. I, I prepared some questions for you, and uh, I really want to hear your response to them because I think some of them will be clarifying in many ways. So Dr. West, the first question I have for you, I don't know if you stated stated this publicly, or maybe sometimes you really don't feel the need to make such statements. What is your preferred economic model for society, Dr. West? Do you consider yourself a socialist, a capitalist, democratic socialist, or do you generally avoid such titles?
3: Well, I mean, I'm not an ism person uh, because I'm trying to make sure that the least of these, that poor working people, those Sly Stone called everyday people, or James Cleveland called ordinary people, lift their voices like the Negro National Anthem. And that means to me a democratizing society all the way down. That's why when you think about self-respect, you think about self-determination, you think about self-defense that comes from a bottoms-up orientation. And once you look at what does a democratic form of the economy look like? It doesn't look like a capitalist economy. Capitalism is not a democratic form of organizing at the workplace. It's hierarchical. And so I'm for workers' control. What does a democratic, a democratizing project look like from the vantage point of culture? When well, you've come from a hater and a terrorized and traumatized culture, you've got to have self-determination in terms of how you define reality, how you define yourself. And therefore various kinds of self-determination, black self-determination, worker self-determination, women's self-determination becomes very important. And certainly there's no room for empire. That's why my very aim is to try to be head of the empire in order to dismantle the empire, right? And how do you dismantle the empire? We got to make sure that you are a people and nation among peoples and nations rather than an empire where other peoples and nations have to defer to you. So you can't reshape the whole world in your image and in your interest. That's what empires have done. There's been roughly 70 empires since the beginning of the species in Africa. The United States is the 68th and this empire will come and go. All empires come and go. Most empires come and go because they got military outreach, corruption of their elites, the impotence of those inside of those empires and the need for people who wanna follow neo-fascist Pied Pipers to overcome the increasing domination and tyranny. And we see that all at work in the United States. Brother Glenn and I used to talk about this all the time. So that am I a socialist? Well, certainly there's a strong socialist dimension to what I'm talking about, but that's just a moment. You know what I mean? That's like asking is John Coltrane or Donny Hathaway or is Phyllis Hyman a socialist way there's elements because when we raise our voices we want to empower everybody and we want all lives to be able to flower and flourish but we've got spiritual dimensions and we've got cultural dimensions that go far beyond isms far beyond ideologies in that way and so in that sense i'm first and foremost a uh a jazz man you know what i mean i'm a blues man dope brother. And, you know, I'm a revolutionary Christian too, but I mean, the cross is all about the blues. The cross is all about catastrophe. And how do you fortify yourself in the face of catastrophe? Just like any great blues song, a blues song stir. So yes, I've always viewed myself as in solidarity with revolutionary socialists, no doubt about it. Uh, In the communist tradition, it would be closer to council communists than the 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 vanguard communists so that you know the soviets without bolsheviks that was what happened at the kronstadt rebellion when they were crushed soviets are workers organizations whereas the vanguard parties were imposing their will upon the workers organization so that the workers councils got crushed so people like Panikok and gorder and it goes all the way up to stanley Aronovich, these are so-called council communists who become revolutionary socialists critical of vanguard party orientation that imposes their will upon workers that's very much my own tradition uh, S- sinclair drake for example is in that same tradition we found it was in the american workers party in 1937 ag musty is part of that tradition as well so it's long answer to your question in terms of if there's any ism it's certainly a revolutionary socialist moment dimension that's why i've been a socialist for the last over oh, 65 years and i'm only no, it's 55 years, I'm sorry, because I'm 70 now. Uh, but it's more than just that. I'm, I'm very much a free black man who is part of a blues tradition.
2: Uh, well, I appreciate that really very elaborate answer to the question. And that's why I gave you the option to say that, you know, you didn't want to be categorized as either or or any, as a matter of fact. So l- moving on, When was the exact moment you decided to run for president and what motivated that decision?
3: Well, you know, as I began to think of just how deep the decay is in the American empire and how undeniable the decline is of the American empire abroad. And I didn't see any voices that would have any visibility or saliency in the presidential discussion. And so when Brother Nick and the People's Party presented the possibility, I thought, prayed and pondered, and I said, you know, just to be able to raise one's voice, to try to tell some painful truths and bear witness to justice, and then acknowledge, given the level of the decay, you got neo-fascists in the Republican Party pushing us toward a second civil war, the neoliberal Biden's in the Democratic Party with their own authoritarian underlay with mass incarceration, and we're not even talking about the bombs dropping on the West Bank and other places, but they're leading toward a third world war. So we got a choice between the second civil war at home and the third world war abroad. We've got to be able to raise some voices to bring some kind of reason, sanity, some kind of insight, some kind of compassion, this situation—you got the ecological catastrophe escalating every day on the corporate greed tied to fossil fuel companies. Hey, and then the white supremacy is always already working. So we're still getting killed by the police. Our children still having to deal with situations in the hood, with indecent housing and decrepit schools, and not enough jobs with a living wage. Economists telling us this is the this economy is the as good as it gets. As good as it gets with the grotesque wealth, wealth inequality, workers still oftentimes having difficulty able to actually form unions with strong, strong bite. And I'm talking about unions not in cahoots with the bosses, but unions that really have at the heart and core of who they are solidarity with their own workers, patriarchal violence, attacks on precious trans and gay brothers and lesbian sisters, what are we? Talking about as good as it gets, so that's so. So I so I then decided I said, well, let me uh let me throw down, let me throw down, let me make this leap, as it were, and uh, I'm 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 glad I did. I'm glad I did. I wish Brother Glenn were around because I need his counsel and his insight. But it's amazing to become this, you know, this menace and all of these other languages that's coming at me. I haven't had one public event. I'm beginning in Mississippi on August 25th. I was invited by the precious Emmett Till family to come down here, part of the 68th anniversary of his vicious murder by cowardly white supremacists. We haven't had one fundraiser. And yet we get all of these various attacks and assaults and so forth. And when you get those kind of attacks and assaults and become a kind of, uh, 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 what some of my brothers and sisters are saying, wow, man, you really a threat. Brother like me a threat? No, it ain't me at all. I'm just a small little moment in a rich tradition of a great people that trying to tell the truth about the callousness and the indifference and the ways in which predatory capitalist processes obsessed with profit are crushing people and trying to make sure that working and poor people are able to straighten their backs up, and especially Black people able to straighten their backs up and bring critiques to bear on a Black bourgeoisie that's become so accommodating to a corporate-dominated status quo and a corporate-dominated Democratic Party and an increasing neo-fascist Republican Party, Black middle-class leadership itself often getting in the way of what our dear brother Glenn called the miss leadership class, that's his own construction, a misleadership, echoes of E. Franklin Fraser's great critique of the black bourgeoisie in 1957, though he wrote it in French in 55, but it came out in English in 57. So that all of that I think has to be made available more and more to the people, because the people are hungry and thirsty for the real thing, as Ashwood and Simpson would put it, ain't nothing like the real thing. You got <laughs> all of these fakes and phonies and frauds out there acting like they're the, they, they in the vanguard of struggle for justice. No, 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 no. Do you know who Stokely Carmichael? Do you know who Bobby Hutton was? Do you know who Erica Huggins? Do you know who? We can go on and on and on. Do you know who Gil Scott Heron was? Do you know who Nina Simone was? We gotta keep their voices alive. So every time I raise my voice, I just want folk to hear their voices coming through a cracked vessel like me and saying, ah, oh, that radical tradition is still alive. And it's still alive in you, still alive in me. We're trying to make sure people have access to it to the best of our ability.
2: Well, I really appreciate your com- comments in that regard, because that actually moves me to my next question. How does a radical activist go from trying to force the empire to change from outside to trying to change the empire from within, from the position of the head of the empire?
3: Well, you, you, you didn't become very much like a Mary Lou Williams. You so see, you got, you, 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 you're part of a collectivity so you can write Black Christ of Andes, and okay, you, 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 you are in a certain sense a leader. I don't believe in leaderlessness, but every leader is in the language of Ella Baker, someone who is so organically connected to the group, to the community, to the collectivity, that you, when you step in, you are part and parcel of an extension of a larger movement because only a radical mass movement can engage ultimately in the dismantling of empire, ultimately in the fundamental transformation of a predatory capitalist society, ultimately in the fundamental change of a white supremacist and male supremacist society. That is what we call revolution. Revolution is what? It is the sharing of power, the sharing of resources, the sharing of dignity, the sharing of callings, and being able to do that in such a way that you get these major shifts in power and you get redistribution of wealth downward we've seen in the counter-revolution of the last 50 years redistribution of wealth upward counter-revolution is what taking power away from the people trying to convince us we powerless trying to convince us we ought to defer and most importantly my brother and this is what is so important about what you've been able to do and what Glenn and Margaret and the others do. Fear. you see, fear. Fear is in some ways the major factor. When you break the back of fear, then it's a new day. Then it's a whole new day. One of the things about Brother Glenn, he was a fearless brother. Courage at the deepest level. And he learned it from Malcolm. He learned it from his father. He learned it from musicians of Ohio. And he learned it from his mother and others, you see. Fear. We've got a massive, massive, uh, fearful community. Scared. Intimidated. Don't want to raise their voices. They can't even be true to the, the Johnson Brothers anthem of Lift Every Voice. They were, they'd rather be an echo. Thank God we didn't say lift every echo, which ain't nothing but an extension of a silo. And if you were echo, you and I know what? You ain't never going to be no John Coltrane. you will be imitating Johnny Hodges for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Monk told me, find your voice. Miles said, find your voice. You got to find your voice. And when you find your voice, that's where your dignity is. That's where your defiance is. That's where your determination is. But the only thing that breaks the back of fear is love you got to love something bigger than you. you got to love your mama and your daddy and your people and and some grand ideal and love the people in all of their concrete forms, you see. That's what breaks the back of fear. And every freedom fighter is a great love warrior. Why? Because they have to come to terms with fear. And we know that black love is a crime in a white supremacist civilization. So anybody who falls in love with black people, get ready to be criminalized, get ready to be lied on, get ready to be misunderstood, get ready to be misconstrued, get ready to be engaged or targeted with character assassination or literal assassination. Hey, that's what love is. That's what love is. That's that's Marcus Garvey. That's Queen Mother Moore. That's Martin Luther King Jr. That's Diane Nash. That's James Lawson. That's Brother Stokely. They love the people enough to break the back of fear. And, you know, it's always a challenge, though, brother, because you have to pay a major cost. But you find joy in that. And that's the important thing. Very much like the great musicians, man, that that the love they have for the music is so profound that they're willing to pay a major cost. Think of a Charlie Parker. Uh, Are you think of a... Dorothy Donigan, you remember she's a piano player that the greatest jazz piano players of all time, Art Tatum, say, she's the only one to make me practice. Art Tatum, what you talking about? Who was Dorothy? Giant, played classical music for so long, shifted to jazz, and then became a student of Art Tatum. Broke the back of any kind of fear of exploring and continuing to grow and continuing to develop and mature. So it is with our freedom father. Look at Malcolm, he's continually growing all the time. All the time. But how do we break the back of fear? See, we've got that misleadership class that Brother Glenn was talking about. They shot through with fear, man. Some of the most scared, intimidated folk you ever want to meet, no matter how much money, no matter how big their mansions and their cribs and living in vanilla suburbs, when it comes down to what kind of choices they really want to make for something, too many of them are afraid.
2: Well, I want to get to that. I had a question specifically revolving around that, and it's going to uh, discuss one of the postulates or ideas we have with this revolutionary podcast, this is a revolution podcast one of, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, one of the biggest obstacles that you are going to find in your presidential uh, run is going to be from the black political class or what, or what Glenn Ford called the black misleadership class. And I want to ask you a very blunt and direct question because we've talked about this here. We've talked about this on other podcasts as well. How is it possible to have a true working class rooted black politics in America, if there is not an internal class warfare or conflict or challenge put to the black political class by the black proletarian and Lumber proletarian for their sheer unwillingness and utility to the power of empire and being an obstacle to black liberation, how can we truly have any kind of truth in the freeing of black people from this condition if we do not suggest, support, and advocate for that black black warfare? And the reason I bring this to you, and this is why I appreciate yeah. you, is this is where we disagree. Because I know you are a believer in the black unified community or the beloved community that comes out of the Gary Convention in '72, and you speak right. in those terms. And I, I understand those terms. I am not uh, as much. Inherent of those terms, because I believe that that politics is what gave birth to the black political class. Oh, my brother, my brother, my sister, my sister, until you get that yeah. job working at Bank of America as a, uh, you know, as an advocate for their policies gentrifying Newark, New Jersey. You know, and that's why, right. as much as I appreciate your camaraderie, your, your camaraderie on a racial on a racial level. I find it problematic because you know how serpentine most of these Negroes are.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, then you, you're you absolutely right about that. And I appreciate these powerful questions, brother. Let me just say that this is no ordinary conversation and dialogue, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that. But no, first you used to start off with the, the fact that in the capitalist society, in the capitalist world, class struggle is real. That cuts across skin pigmentation, cuts across gender, sexual orientation, cuts across national boundaries. Class struggle is real. We go back to Gary in 1972. You know, we were just emerging out of a moment where we tried to break the back of American apartheid uh, centered in the South and the forms of Jim Crow Jr. and Jane Crow uh, uh, junior in the, in, in the North. So you still had segregation in the North. You had outright apartheid in the South. So you're going to have a very, very strong Black consciousness. And I identify with that Black consciousness. I come out of a Black church. I come out of a Black musical tradition. Mom and dad and everybody who shake me and love me and sacrifice for me were beautiful Black people. Uh, but the class struggle is still real. Now, I'll, Gary, We got black politicians, but we also got a Mary Baraka when he went through his black nationalist stage and then understood class struggle was real and had his more class-based analysis, but always sensitive to struggles against the legacies of white supremacy and so forth. So that that Gary conference, you know, was a heterogeneous gathering, right? You had a number of different forces, but the dominant forces was that of the black political class the black political strata and the black bourgeoisie, you're absolutely right, and that's why we have to tell the truth about them. That's why, again, brother Glenn and the other yeah, Black Agenda Report and others, but especially brother Glenn, was so explicit about uh, uh, the the Obama years, because Obama was simply was a sign and a symbol, not simply an isolated individual, but a sign and symbol of the consolidation and the triumph of the black political strata within the american empire to do what to protect wall street to protect the militarism abroad to continue dropping those drones on innocent people to continue to be in in in, in unity with an apartheid like israel against palestinians undergoing indescribable evil to expand africom on the continent to downplay the entree of the haitians vis-a-vis the Europeans and so or, or even Indians from India and so forth when we talk about immigration you see so that you ended up with these black faces in high places that was a consequence of a class struggle in which you're absolutely right the black politicians actually moved to the very top but the structure remained the same the empire remained the same wall street domination remained the same mass incarceration continued to expand Grotesque wealth inequality continued to kick in. And what happens? You get a Black Lives Matter movement under black president, black attorney general, black homeland security. All three, those are powerful positions in the US empire, not the most powerful, because the permanent government of any capitalist society is, is big business, big money. But those political officers, powerful ones, all of them black, but can't even begin to deliver on the basic needs of black poor and working people. Class struggle is real. Class conflict is real. So I'm actually agreeing with you in terms of uh, 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 the the trajectory of Gary, but the the dominant trajectory was one of the black middle-class politicians moving into high places. But you had a number of radicals who began to bring critique to bear of that, of course, and Adolf Reed, of course, has been quite consistent in his critique of this. Gerald Horn, you know, you think of towering black black leftist intellectuals uh, uh, as well who've been very critical of this. Uh, Angela Davis, of course, saw it very, very early.
2: Well, I appreciate your candidate. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm glad you're willing to see the, the the kind of the conflict I see with the ideology and the methodology of addressing those class divisions while yet trying to reach out in solidarity with people who come from them, those class, those class quarters as well. Because I feel that once you give them succor, they're going to start to suck the blood from you. You give them Ooh. an opportunity. Wow. Yeah,
3: that's, that's real. But what I'm saying, does it make sense to you, though, brother?
2: Yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from, brother. I understand okay. how the trajectory... I mean, as someone like yourself, I was merely a child in those years. I mean, you were an adult coming to the young adulthood, seeing these things transpire in in your own face in real time.
3: Exactly.
2: So understanding the emotional sentiment of the time, there is such a thing as time and place when doing analysis. You know, you can make the argument that what you read about a period of time and place 50 years later gives you a good precipice of what exactly was happening. But that's never going to replace the experience of being in that time and place. And seeing things with your own eyes, and understanding what motivated people's emotions in those spaces, to see how they got caught up in what they did. And some yeah. some people, some people yeah. may have gotten caught up in a good idea. Some people may have got caught up in a bad idea. But the thing is, though, nonetheless, people
3: got caught up. Well, know? we and keep in mind, my brother, the uh, the the context. One of the dominant forces of the context alongside the co-optation and the incorporation of the black uh, misleadership class, as Brother Glenn would put it, is repression. You see, we can never downplay the role of vicious repression, incarceration, and assassination that so many of our love warriors, Mumia right now still going, we'll get HRAP Brown, uh, Imam al hameen in, in, in Arizona just, we just wrote a pamphlet just a year or so ago, trying to make his uh, situation more more visible. Uh, or Asada Shakur, I mean, of course, without president, I would pardon all of them. But I would pardon Julian Assad, that was part of Edward Snowden, because they're all political prisoners who tried to tell the truth, Leonard Peltier and so forth. But the level of repression and surveillance and being crushed, we shall never forget Bobby Hutton's death two days after Brother Martin's death, right? 17 years old, Oakland. I know Brother Jason say he's from Oakland. Bobby Hutton's right there. You see. Fred Hampton. We can go on and on and on. You see, those those that that's real. And and therefore, uh, you know, the FBI and the CIA and the others, man, these, these are some serious gangsters, man. I'm telling you. There's some serious thugs, man. They will crush you in a second. That's again why whatever fear is coming our way, if you don't have that deeper love that allows you to still invest some kind of trust and confidence in the capacity of the people to fight even after you're gone so you can leave a legacy such that your spirit is at work in their bodies, hearts, minds, and souls in their movements, not just in their personhoods, but in their movements, in their families, in their music. You see, musicians are the vanguard of the species, brother. That's all we had out of the 244 years of the most barbaric white supremacist slavery in the history of the world. Against the law for us to learn how to read and write. It's against the law for us to get together and organize. It's against the law for us to worship God without white supervision. All we could do is what? Steal away at night and form a ring, shouting, hold hands, and lift our voices and create those beautiful spiritual songs that will be sung until the end of time. That's part of our tradition. It's a distinctive tradition, and it produces the greatest tradition of the 20th century which is the black musical tradition there's no other tradition in the barbaric 20th century that has been deeper in terms of creativity deeper in terms of fortitude deeper in terms of courage and that's why it has penetrated every nook and cranny of the world not just because it's part of the american cultural imperial apparatus but when people hear the music the blues and the jazz and the rhythm and blues and the hip-hop and the ragtime and everything else me and jason was talking about rick james black punk well whatever it is we ain't got no categories for it. but something is coming out of the heart minds and souls of a hated people that has such deep love coming out of the hearts and minds and souls of an unfree people that is so free it's like the connection between i have a dream of martin king and Zoom by the Commodores. Those are freedom dreams in the language of Robin Kelly. That's what it is. That's the anthem of the brothers I've taught in prison for 41 years. That's their song. Zoom. Why is Zoom? Freedom dreams. I'm trying to get some distance from all of this hatred and terror and give an idea of what life can be like when we're free. We respect each other. Treat each other right. Create a free society with its democratized institutions and structures you see that's for me the crucial thing to never ever ever forget
2: no i understand that and as someone who's been a long time aficionado and appreciator of black cultural production and music i i see the sentiment but what has happened to me as much as i've gotten deeper in my dialectical materialist of how empire and capital uses black cultural production to further, yeah. its, further its own ends, That's further true. its own utility, and further the subjugation of Black people, I begin to ask, and I say this respectfully, we can disagree, does yeah. essentializing Black people as cultural producers not validate them as something, quote unquote, exotic and different? that gives fodder to racial racialist connotations. It's like, oh, look at those Negroes. They make such wonderful music. In other words, when we do this, the things that we say about ourselves, like it's our music that makes us so special. Well, well, how would we feel if David Duke started saying that? It was just their Negroes in their music that's so wonderful. I often think that sometimes when we essentialize ourselves in our cultural production, which is something that is always, you'll never hear white intellectuals chastising Black people for singing hymns of the greatness of their cultural production. You never will. Why? Because it fits into the panoply of stereotypes the Western world has about Black people. I mean, what was an old statement from the early 20th century? Uh, black black people are the, are the females of the races. Why? Because they're so culturally and artistic and they make these wonderful things. This is not to say that we should shy away from the cultural productivity that we have. But when we essentialize Blackness as a cultural producer, does that that not serve the ends of those people who say, well, look. Well, of course they can. They're Black. They play drums so wonderful. They've been doing it for hundreds of years.
3: No, that's that's very powerful, brother. And I hope that uh, all of your wonderful listeners uh, take in your insight and your wisdom. I would say this that one, we should never essentialize because these are all historical products. Right? See, when you essentialize, you're saying something that's ahistorical. You see, this, these are historical products of music that we produce, the way in which Black people walk and talk and preach and so forth. And so, all those are forms of struggle at the deepest visceral and cerebral level. So, we don't want to essentialize at all. Two, that they're, they're, all truths are subject to multiple deployment by powers that be. Truths can be used by liars. You see, that great insights can be used by uh, uh, mendacious folk. You see, so that when, let's say, a David Duke, and it's interesting because when I was in Charlottesville, and we only had about 18 of us at the end singing this little light of mine, right? What if Antifa? We would have got crushed like cockroaches, right? But we 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 right there with all the uh, the right wing, uh, not just right wing, but neo Nazis and the Klan and so forth. Well, some of them listen to Motown in the park, man. I mean, so your you, your point is, is is real. Now they gonna listen to Stevie Wonder, and and at the same time want to kill Stevie Wonder and all of the folk who produced him me and you and the others, right? But part of it is that the, the, the genius of Black people is just so profound, not because we're Black, it's because what we have created under slave, neo slave hood, ghetto conditions. And it is, in that sense, an element of decolonizing because it's an affirmation of our humanity, no matter how much we have dehumanizing forces coming at us. That truth can be used by the David Dukes. That truth used by the neoliberal uh, culture industry, right? I mean, who who ran the clubs and and the nightclubs? How come Coltrane was trying to create his own label? How come Curtis Mayfield founded Kirkdom? How come Otis Retton was trying to get his own label? They knew that when it came to economic power, that they were being exploited. But at the same time, they also knew they were coming from a tradition that was so rich, it would be used in a variety of different ways. And part of the spiritual and cultural warfare going on today, especially among our young people, is the dumbing down of our music. I was blessed to write a song with a genius named Bootsy Collins called Freedom on his album, Funk Capital of the World. But Freedom, F-R-E-E-D-U-M now he he came up with the title that's part of his genius but we worked out the song in the studio right meaning what the dumbing down of our music the dumbing down of our culture to try to convince us that the only alternative is to accommodate to the status quo the only alternative is to be well adjusted to injustice well adapted to indifference so that the battle over our music the three albums that i did each time i went to the different the heads of the labels, they say we want G-string music. Wes, we don't want all this freedom crap. We got rid of that stuff in the 60s. I said, oh, really? Bring in a little Talib Kwali. I brought in some Jill Scott. I brought in the greatest soul singer of the younger generation, Gerald LeVert, last song he did before he died young. We brought in Lenny, brought in Brother Lenny from Tower of Power and the others. I said, now, uh-uh, we're gonna get this out anyway. Thank God Steve McKeever did. He was in, it still is head of hidden beach, but he was in with Jill Scott at the time, meaning what? That's a battle. That's a spiritual and a cultural battle precisely because of your powerful insights so that the right wing or the liberals or the imperialists or whatever can say, oh, Lord, that Michael Jackson can dance. That prince can move. That James Brown is beyond description. Well, they're right, but they're not right for the reasons they wouldn't forward. They're right because there is no James Brown. There is no Aretha Franklin without the collective struggle of a great people in the face of overwhelming forces of hatred and terror and and, and trauma, but never allowing the hatred and terror and trauma to have the last word. The, The challenge is how do we translate that kind of artistic courage into political courage? See, that's the shift. If our intellectuals had the same courage as a you know, Ben Webster, we ain't even talking about Charlie Parker yet, but a Ben Webster, so sharp and sweet and sophisticated and gut bucket subtlety and so forth, hey, and free. Oh, man. You know we, back, back, back we'd, have Glenn, we'd have Glenn Ford running all over the country, man.
2: I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I feel like I'm, I I I regret that I have to go back to the banality of the questions that I prepared no, that deal no, with no, the no, no, deal with okay, the presidential bro. election, unfortunately, because you know I could I I could enjoy having this dialogue and debate with you or this discussion about the nature of what black cultural production means in American yes. Empire.
1: That's- can we bring That's Dr. We West back up? Can we bring Dr. West back on at some point to uh, have a discussion about the uh, class politics of disco?
2: The class—I'm really? sure he would love to do that. We had a great—oh,
3: absolutely! I come in humble because I know I can learn from Brother Jason himself, <laughs> <laughs> You heard—you
1: heard him say it. Y'all heard him say it. Back—back you to, back to your regularly scheduled programming.
2: Uh, well, I gotta let me, let me take you to a couple of questions here because I gotta—I gotta get your point here. I gotta get your opinion on this this is very important do you believe that there is a global dialectic that has worsened since the 2008 crash that has politics in large parts of the west to be stuck in a dialectic between neoliberal technocrats or liberal globalists as some would call them and right-wing reactionaries typified by donald trump marine le pen in france victor orban in hungary and the brexit of supporting faction in british politics in other words do you agree that global Western politics, maybe not only exclu- exclusively in Western powers, because we have Bolsonaro also in uh, right. in uh, in uh, Brazil, we have uh, Modi in India. Do you agree that particularly post 2008 tr- crash, you know, not to, to fall on the false quote of Lenin that says capitalism is the uh, the the initiator of fascism, because that is a false quote. It's not a true quote, even though ideologically it is, it does wax wax well in the consciousness of those on the left do you agree that the world is moving into this very dangerous binary or dialectic where there is a kind of almost kind of like empire-like battle between the neoliberal between the the uh the reactionary right the new reactionary right and the global neoliberal technocrat
3: yes yes i think for me, it's very important to always begin with historical context and the dynamic factors in historical context. 1492 to 1945, that's the age of Europe. But those nations between the Euro Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean tried to reshape the whole world in light of their image and their interests. That was European imperial expansion. 1945, it's over. Indescribable evil in the concentration camps. African decolonization emerging with tremendous power. All of the European empires beginning to implode. And what emerges? The Soviet empire on the one hand and the American empire on the other. 1991, Soviet empire goes under and all of its satellite countries had already gone under 1989. What's left? The American empire, the only superpower. 800 military units around the world Military expenditure more ten times more than the next 10, ten times more than the next ten countries. China only got five. Russia got thirty. We got over 800 military units around the world. But what happens? We are now witnessing the decentering of the American Empire, just like we saw the decentering of European empires in the 1940s. Well what happens when you decenter an empire? Well, not only the worst comes back, people get nostalgic about when it was quote unquote great. Great for who? Not indigenous peoples, not working people, not black folk and so forth. It was great in its own nostalgic eyes, given the role of big money, big capital, and having workers, women, especially black folk and other people of color, indigenous people under control. Those days are over in terms of perception and they're hanging on for dear life And the only alternatives, and they're both class wars. Neoliberalism, that's what Clinton was all about. That's what the Democratic National Council was all about, all the way through Obama and now Biden, or increasing neo-fascism. That's flowing out of the Dixiecrats, which used to be Democratic, right? 1945 with Strom Thurmond and company. And then George Wallace Wallace gets 13.5% of the votes on a white supremacist platform in 1968. This is after Brother Martin was murdered, right? And he's third party. So, so the Republican Party picks that up and we end up, you're absolutely right, with this counter-revolution, with this wavering between neo-fascism and neoliberalism, but both are forms of class war against working people. One is explicitly white supremacist and xenophobic. The other is still deeply racist. You can't have a mass incarceration regime, disproportionately black and brown, where the Biden himself was architect, without him being complicitous with one of the great crimes of you, against humanity. That's what our prisons are. Like sites of barbarity. I've been in there for 41 years. People ought to be ashamed that they even exist in America or any other place. You know what I mean? And and they flow out of our hoods. The richest nation in the history of the world and 63% of the population living paycheck the paycheck and 40% of the black children living in Poverty, that is spiritually sick. It's obscene. When they write the history of the fall of the American empire, they're gonna say, where were the people fighting? Where were the voices? Could they see these people suffering? Couldn't they see the social misery of the masses? And if they only see the black middle class in, white, in the White House or the black middle class in mayorships and so forth, they're gonna say, damn, y'all were some cowardly folk. You didn't tell the truth. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. That's what we learn from our musicians, brother. You can't I mean, tell the truth and, and sing a song, Good Morning Heartache. No, no. You're going to have to have some suffering speaking, man, or it's going to be trite and empty and hollow. You could take that to the vanilla side of town. We want the truth at the Apollo.
1: <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this: in in regards to to the truth and you know prison conditions. To
3: West is not gonna forgive
2: me for my blasphemy for coming at black music, man. He's oh I
3: no, mean, it wasn't uh, no, no, no. no. We, we together. We together on this, bro. I mean, look the way they use Louis Armstrong, man. He's one of the greatest revolutionary figures of the last hundred fifty years. He's out there playing for the for the empire, right? Yeah. He's ambassador yeah. for the empire in the Katanga province. When he's singing that when... high C in yeah. West End Blues for his mama. That ain't for the empire, brother. They're using him for the empire, but the music itself has the capacity to actually be a critique of it, even though, no doubt, they're trying to deploy it in such a way that it's just American dream and the old traditional liberal project. We're going to go right ahead, Brother Jason.
1: I mean, we we also, uh, there's a, a lot of underclass ideology also, too, in a lot of Black popular music. You know, the hip hop, a lot of hip hop definitely embraces uh, a certain underclass ideology. Uh, you know, uh, these wayward kids are this way because they don't have daddies. Uh, right. We definitely had a lot of black cinema in the 90s. Boys in the Hood, in my opinion, is a, you know, uh, commercial for the 1994 crime bill. And then uh, maybe Menace to Society doubles down on that. You know, what say you about... Um, about that when it comes to, you know, kind of the black culture industry. Um, you know, I did a, a video essay. The the last one I did was called same as it ever was about um, black cinema. I don't think much has changed from the seventies to Wakanda. You know, mm-hmm. why are we celebrating uh, Wakanda? Like it's th- this great, uh, place when this technologically advanced empire that has never seen slavery is still fighting on the savannah on the backs of animals with spears there seems to be a certain uh image yeah. regardless if kings and queens like I, I, like why are we excited about a monarchy uh, that has to have a bloodline for you to be a part of it so right. you, you know what is it about our cultural production that almost seems stuck in either an over glorification of 1972 or, or, you know, we haven't changed much from Shaka Zulu. When you look at something like uh, black Panther, where does the movie look? I'm, I'm a comic reader. I'll, yes, I'll watch yes. another sequel, but I do understand, you know, the issues with these.
3: No, no, indeed. Indeed. I hear exactly what you're saying. I think one way of looking at it is, Zero in on that year, 1972, a superfly. The so called black exploitation movies. Uh, And then listen to the music of the genius of geniuses, Curtis Mayfield, the West Side of Chicago. I'm so glad I got my own. You see, Uh, uh, Push a Man, the humanity of Fred, the critique of the implicit ideology of. Everybody obsessed with the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not get caught, caught, only concerned about commodities, possessing your soul by means of commodities. You're absolutely right. See, it's one thing to depict and to describe uh, in moving images and sound of uh, the various forces at work in the very impoverished areas of our precious hoods. And I grew up in the ghetto, but that's Donny Hathaway. We have a whole lot of love and resistance going on in the ghetto, whereas the hood's got some, but not as much as we had. That's a major shift. We had a neighborhood in the ghetto. The hood don't have too, doesn't have as many neighbors as at all. But it's one thing to depict it, but it's another thing to have a 1994 crime bill that says instead of quality schools, quality housing, quality education, quality jobs, we gonna give these folk containment, suppression by the police mm-hmm. and we sending so many of them too many of them innocent to mass incarceration so there's a step between on the one hand the depiction of what's going on and then the response you see John Singleton who I actually didn't know but we've had many many conversations. if you to ask him whether he would accept the response to the depiction of his film being mm-hmm. mass incarceration my hunch would say no he wouldn't agree with that
1: i so mean I'm look i've got
3: to be an artist and lay bare what's going on in the, in the hood
1: I, i'm so i'm 40 there's,
3: a difference, there's okay. a difference between laying out the depiction mm-hmm. and the response you see what i mean mm-hmm. and you see when you get curtis mayfield's music was the response to the hood and we listen to that album Oh, it's so much dignity, so much truth-telling, so much visionary energy. You agree with me on that?
1: Look, uh, you're talking to a Curtis Mayfield fan, right? Oh, so, And I'm from down the road from you, right? We want to talk about Hoods. I'm from down the road. and I was born in Oakland, grew up in Richmond, California. So. Oh, yeah.
3: So and, and you're, you're at the Natural Four. The Natural Four was chosen by Curtis Mayfield.
1: You remember when he had his show?
3: That was the first group. So, so you the know, first I'm— First that he had on. Can this be real
1: be I, re- I remember those that I time but, but, <laughs> <for> you, <everybody. laughs> but you know I, re- I remember that that moment in the in the 80s and the 90s and I remember how violent it was and I also remember that the community as a whole you know if you want to talk about a movie that you know is extremely problematic but there's a scene in that movie that I think is probably the most accurate portrayal of the discussions that were happening at the time when we talk about like crime bills is a movie called colors because there's a scene where there's like a community meeting and the problem i have with colors of course is that it depicts the police as technologically outnumbered by a superior force being gangs and that was it was actually quite the other way around um but that scene is these people in the community going look we need more police because we got these fools shooting up the neighborhood but we also don't want you messing with our kids because our kids aren't a part of this problem. And I remember, I mean, was it Ishmael Reed, I believe, is quoted in I want to say about 91 as saying that he would and I don't know if he feels this way today. It's been 30 years, that he wished 13-year-old crack dealers would get life sentences. And that was the way a lot of people looked at the problem. We weren't looking at it as, well, is it really just removing Drug dealers from neighborhoods With longer sentences And here we are About 30 years later In 2023 And I'm seeing a lot of the same rhetoric That I saw with a much mm-hmm. Less bad crime problem What we're seeing today with you know Property crime pales in comparison To the violence that we saw in the 80s and 90s Not to say that that crime bill was justified It's just different um, right, right. But the rhetoric Coming from concerned citizens and now a lot of democratic politicians really for me mirrors the same rhetoric that we saw building up into three strikes and 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 what you what you saw with the crime bill and and i know you were were outspoken and there wasn't a lot of people really pushing back against that crime bill uh, it, was a, it was a very small minority of people it at
3: was, the time. We were cutting against the grain in a serious, serious way. And the same was true with the welfare bill that was signed at the same time. But keep in mind, I mean, you know, Brother Ishmael Reed, he's a literary genius and a giant, but he ought to be shame of himself for saying something like that. But what he said was on a continuum with the Black Congressional Caucus, most of whom voted for the same Strom Thurstrom Joe Biden crime deal that Biden helped push through, back to the mis- black misleadership class again, you see. That for them, the quickest way of dealing with this was to just get rid of these folk, They predators. That was the dominant language coming out of uh, James Wilson and Johnny and John Elulio, uh, uh, the scholarship, inadverted commerce, and many of us were fighting against it. But we should also know, this is where the class question comes in that it, it, I don't think Ishmael Reed would say that about his own son, you see. He's talking about the brothers somewhere else. We're not talking about Jack and Jill, young middle-class black folk. Mm. No, 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 no. You're not talking about the uh, 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 the Martha Vineyard young people. Mm, God bless them. Man, I'm a Christian, say so I'm again. trying to love everybody. You know what I mean? But hey, say I, I begin with the chocolate side of town. I begin with the least of these on the chocolate side of town. How you treat them, you treat your own kids the same way. That's what I got from my mother, Irene B. West, of Shiloh Baptist Church, who was a first grade teacher and a principal who taught Vacation Bible School double every summer in the hood. Shiloh Baptist Church, where I went, and the Black Panther Party was right next door. And when we walked through the community, they grabbed her and say, Mrs. West, you helped teach me to read you love me. You gave me a sense of possibility. They didn't have to join the church because we loved them. They were the same ones that later on would join the Panthers. So that, that's what I'm talking about. See. It's, it's, it's its the folk who understand that Jamal and Letitia have exactly the same value as your middle class child who's black, who's on the way to Howard or Morehouse or Harvard or whatever ruling class or elite institution they go to. And I'm not putting them down. I'm just equalizing, I'm leveling them. And there's no doubt that if the level of mass incarceration was hitting black upper middle-class children, we wouldn't have had mass incarceration. That's a fact and that's a class reality because they didn't believe that Jamal and Letitia had the same value as their own kids. And I tell my kids from the day they were born, That you see that brother and sister over there hanging out on the block with his pants falling down? He got exactly the same value as you. Dang, well, that's what my Christian faith is all about. You don't have to be a Christian believer. You can be a Buddhist like bell hooks. Same thing. You can be an atheist like CLRJ. Same thing. You could be like Glenn Ford. And Glenn Ford was kind of spiritual because he was a musically oriented brother, but he wasn't religious in any traditional sense. We come together on that.
2: Well, Doctor West, we are over an hour, and the mile mile hour is an hour, and I got to tell you something right now, brother. We got to have you back on the show to oh, talk. Well, about I'm it.
3: coming back, brother. You just call, I come running, man. I tell yes, you that right definitely, now.
2: definitely. We are, we we're gonna go with the outro, and we after the outro, we're gonna further our little connections to make sure we have direct uh, direct access to you, and we got to have you more to not only to not only hear you voice out your presidential election bid, but get much more deeper into the philosophical conundrum of black life in the 21st century. I'd like to hear more of your discussion about that. The class context of American life and the American political scene, uh, popular culture from a class and cultural analysis. Mm. um, um, Historical facts and figures. From individuals past and forward the role of the black left in the contemporary left and why it's been sadly
3: ignored yes yes that's so I, true but again no brother i just want to salute you for keeping alive you know the, the revolutionary wing of the grand tradition of a great people now again, i get i'm not essentializing that because i know we got some black thugs and gangsters dead up and i got a lot of thuggery and gangster in me But I can tell you one thing, that when it comes to truth-telling, justice-seeking with style and with a smile and with a spirit and with a rhythm and with a poly-like the black revolutionary tradition, man, is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's what you all represent, you and brother Glenn and Margaret and the others goes all the way back, man, 400 years.
2: I appreciate the appellation, brother. I appreciate the, all of the, the wonderful, the wonderful things that you have said. Does the crew have anything they want to say in parting to Dr. Cornell West?
1: T sunk.
3: We need to talk about house music. Oh, I got a house album coming out in about nine months, my dear sister. I know it. I know it. You heard about that. We were just at the house of the house of yes in Brooklyn just the
1: other night. We we That's did right. we've done multiple shows on house music and then kind of it where it comes from and definitely the class politics behind uh, house oh, music. Lord, with Some yeah. of the bigger, Brother producers. Frank
3: and them, Lord have mercy. Uh, no, we definitely. But I mean, yeah. I, I come in humbly because I'm I'm old school. Y'all know that now. I'm old school. I'm yeah. I'm the Maddox and Dell, and main ingredient and enchantment and temptations mm-hmm. and emotions and the Jones girl and we ain't got to Earth Wind and Fire yet. So I'm a real old school, but I love my house music and me and brother Brandon finishing up on this, we already released four songs on, but uh, I've got that hope that one of them, Fire from James Baldwin is another, but no, but house music again is very much like the blues, it's become appropriated by a number Mm. of brothers and sisters who are not black in terms of the reception, but the origins and the beginnings are shot through with the best of those features of black musical tradition, though they really are all right well thank you very
1: much for taking the time to talk with Dr. West, us today. listen
2: man we're going to have you on if not we, we i mean we have the mama that's going to be the last wednesday of the month of course in august but we may have to do a set what's what's your schedule like on saturday, saturday
1: you can't this is a production you can't have a production uh conversation on air <laughs> <laughs> oh, we gotta, we oh, here,
3: what? oh you know i'm getting ready i'm getting on a plane on saturday you know, we getting ready because like i said you know we haven't had our uh events, yet we building for Mississippi and things, but I'm on a plane. But what I can do, I'm, I'm going to be on the road until the uh, beginning of September. We can start the fall off with some fire tied to the musical tradition and how any political activist who is worthy of themselves and of the tradition can connect to our talk about what's going on.
1: The real question is, Dr. West, is Earth, Wind & Fire, Black Yacht Rock?
3: oh lord, a fire, man. lord <laughs> have mercy Lord, that was just with is Bill frankie Bailey, beverly a couple black months yacht ago, rock. that's that's Listen, the reaction
2: is blaspheming jason is blaspheming traditions that he calls earth wind, and fire and frankly baby beverly black yacht rock
1: He's, black yacht the, rock
2: the, the statement is that they are the the music of you know boat shoe wearing upper middle class more wet drinking going on vineyards type Negroes and that, that music is divorced from the black proletariat. So he calls it oh, black but no, god but
3: Jason knows when he listens to Devotion, yeah. devotion <laughs> the beat of Devotion goes back to the black church and he grew up in Memphis and the south side of Chicago. I, I grew
1: Look, I grew up in a black church in Richmond, California, McLaughlin Temple. My, my grandfather was a Kojic uh, bishop, yes. actually. Yes. But when I hear Buddy, uh! I picture oh, no, Negroes on a different. boat! I picture Negroes
3: on a boat! I know you're right about that, but devotion's a different kind of sound, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different jam. There's when the fire's heterogeneous, man, they, they could get new age one second, and then Phil Bailey could take you to church Ooh. the next minute, Ooh. then they off with the hippies the next minute, then they back with, with, with Crosby still and Nash the next minute, and as you know, Maurice White played the drums for yes. Ramsey Lewis for four years, right? Beast. That's fair. Exactly. So that he, he's got on, his connections with that dance. But he's got all of those elements. But but this is a kind of yeah. rich tradition given the geniuses that they are uh that, that we could get into. But uh, but I hear exactly what you say. <laughs> it's it's partially
1: tongue in cheek. It's partially tongue in cheek. I just want I just want Pascal to feel bad whenever he puts on Frankie Beverly. That's all. I mean, whenever Pascal puts on his boat shoes and is walking around Miami Beach with his with his uh mint julep and a and a uh parasol I want him to feel anyway, bad as he's which listening is never you are but now we gonna do
3: something in the fall, no matter what. Listen, and brother, I'm you are you now. This is rev- you are now. You uh, let me
2: tell you, you are now. This is Revolution Podcast, uh, team family, man. So, you know, you've been here once. We're gonna have you on again, brother. You will, you know, you we keep you in rotation for sure, brother.
3: This hey, has been brother you years. honor me to have me back, and you honor me, really. And I salute you all.
1: Thank, thank, you. You, thank you, Dr. Thank West. You. Thank you, everybody, checking it out. And Toussaint, what do we say when we leave?
0: We are out. Peace. If I tell any secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me.
1: The whole system in this country, the economic system is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's it's decreasing jobs. And uh, as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no
0: uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mau, or this oath will kill me.